0: Well, good morning again, if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to continue working our way through this important epistle this morning. My dear friend uh, Mike Abendroth is only about an hour and a half east of us right now preaching this morning in Pittsburgh. We're looking forward to both he and his brother being here for the Pillars of Truth Conference um, in late April, so I hope that you've taken the initiative to carve out that time in your in your calendar and to make certain that you're going to be here for that. That's an important time for us here at uh, the church, and um, we want to make certain that the conference is well attended and there's going to be some great information provided and good good preaching. We're going to be talking about our triune God, the importance of understanding the Trinity correctly, both in terms of its purpose and function and also its impact in ministry. And so I'm hopeful that you'll, you'll be here for that the end of April, April 29th, 30th, May 1st um, here at the church. Before we get started this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for uh, taking the initiative as we just sang about, uh, we did not choose you, but you chose us rather in our sin and our iniquity. And as we were reminded in the psalm we read this morning psalm one thirty six your your loving kindness, your mercy is everlasting. Um, in that passage, we have great reminders of your power and your strength, the confidence that we can have in the fact that if you have saved us, we are indeed saved, we are indeed kept. Uh, you are a mighty God, a god of victory, a god of one who conquers, one who vanquishes foes and enemies and brings us into safety. We praise you, Lord, for the finished work of Jesus Christ and who we rest and, and who we place our confidence and our faith. We thank you, Lord, for providing to us through his finished work um, the ability to be known by you. We rejoice that we can come here today as the saints Of God, holy ones who've been set apart by you for the purpose of glorifying your name, singing your praises, reflecting on our redemption, reflecting on what you've done for us, the grace, the mercy, the love that you've extended to us. We rejoice over those wonderful truths. Help us this morning to worship with our minds. Help us to be engaged in understanding the Word. We ask, Lord, for the work of the Holy Spirit in that regard, that you would illumine our hearts and minds, that you would cause us to. to to have clarity of thought, to see the wonders of the truths that are communicated to us, what you would expect of us as the redeemed of God, how we should be living our lives um, as a way of expressing our gratitude to you for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would protect us from the buffeting of the evil one, the cares and concerns of the world, Help us to set aside this brief moment of time at the beginning of the week to focus on You. We pray that You would be with us this week. Guide us and direct us through Your Word. Help us to be salt and light in this dark world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Colossians chapter 3, we've been spending some time here, of course, trying to work through these important passages that we have here in Colossians 3 as it relates to our life in Christ and living for Jesus Christ. Um, Paul, of course, is concerned that the indicatives that he has taught, that is, the the doctrine that he has taught in the preceding chapters and at the beginning of chapter 3, express themselves in the living of these believers in Colossae. We are reminded that there was a false teacher in Colossae, that this person had come in and had corrupted the 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 presentation of the gospel that he had led people astray making them focus on themselves rather than on jesus christ that he was teaching a works based form of righteousness and leading the people down the wrong path and so paul writes a very deep doctrinal epistle to correct the error he takes them back to the foundations of who they were before god saved them and how god saved them and who jesus christ is and why we can rest in his finished work And what was accomplished for us through the work and person of Jesus Christ. And how we then live our lives expressing joyfully, um, delightfully, the imperatives now that he presents to us. Paul here is speaking to us in chapter 3, beginning with verse 5, about the idea of mortifying sin. About putting sin to death, which is so very important for us. This is a call that we are given through scripture, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to be reminded of how Christians ought to be living both ethically and morally. Now, we don't do these things to be saved. God has saved us according to his grace and mercy, not based upon our merit, not thinking that you were, for some reason, a good catch. We're so glad that we got John. We're so glad that we got Joel. We're so glad that we got Debbie. We got a good catch. I actually had someone tell me that one time, that, uh, that his focus was on trying to get people that God would be impressed with. What a a way to minister the gospel. (laughs) He's not impressed with anybody. And so Paul here wants to make certain that this principle of the reality of our transformation in Christ is expressed through the conduct and behaviors that we both engage in and do not engage in. And so beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says the following, Therefore if you have been raised up with Christ. So the predicate for all of that flows from this is based upon the idea that you are indeed a believer, that you are a Christian, that you understand that God has saved you and that he has raised you up, as communicated in chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, and as a consequence of that, you needed someone to give you life. You can't raise yourself from the dead. And so, Paul emphasizing that principle again. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so last week we took the time to begin to unpackage the meaning of verse 8. And Paul here in verses 6 and 7 had laid the foundation as a way of reminder to these Colossi believers to to recall and reflect upon who they once were, that you have been changed, that you have been transformed, that you have been made new creation in Jesus Christ, that you are no longer associated with or connected with the past. So live in the reality of the newness of life that you have in Jesus Christ. That's why verse 5 starts off with, therefore, That therefore reaches back into the doctrinal truths of chapter 2 and the first four verses of chapter 3. We've talked about the idea of there being a root. We are rooted in Jesus Christ, and as a consequence of that, there is going to be a necessary fruit that comes out of that. One of the the fruits that comes out of that is our disdain for sin. We are now united to a thrice-holy God, through jesus christ god hates sin that's what we're told in scripture he has saved us from the wages of sin which is death in this newness of life now we have a desire a gospel gratitude if you will to do the things that please him the psalmist would say that the law was a delight to him It wasn't that he was bound to the rigors of the law, but that that rather he understood that the law set boundaries for him by which he could live a life that was pleasing to the Lord and he would want to do that. This is what Paul is doing and this is what I want you to be mindful of. The tendency is this. When we come out of these passages that talk to us of doctrine, that give us the foundations for the the reasons we do things, we tend to slip away from the truths that we were taught and begin to refocus on ourselves. We begin to look at the lists that are contained here. And there are lists. Verse 5 contains a list of things that we should be killing in our lives, should not be engaged in. The same for verse 8. And so our confidence then becomes focused on our faithfulness in not doing these things rather than remembering that we now are not doing these things because of what Christ has done for us, bearing in mind that he never did any of the things in verse 5, bearing in mind that he never did any of the things in verse 8. We can take confidence and rest in that. So here in chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, Paul has been pointing out that living in unrighteousness is inconsistent with the gospel because the gospel is described as the way of righteousness and a holy commandment. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 21 does that. In other words, the gospel call is not just to believe in our heads, but also to follow Christ in our lives out of gratitude for what he has done for us. The grace of the gospel must go hand in hand with a lifestyle of righteousness. Those who are united to Christ will live out that reality in their daily living or walk as it's often referred to in scripture. You can go to Galatians chapter 5 and Paul uses that imagery in a very vivid way. Speaking of those who walk in the flesh versus those who walk in the what? Spirit. Paul there identifying that there is clearly a distinction to be made between those who are in the flesh, that is, those who are unregenerate, unsaved people, versus those who are. For Paul, it necessarily follows that a Christian is going to do what? Act like a Christian. Such a novel idea. How remarkable is that? And so for Paul, he wants to make certain that they're grasping the magnitude, the wonder, the transformative effect of their salvation on the way they live, on the way they think, on the way they act with each other, the things that they do and the things that they don't do. We then see that grace empowers us to live in righteousness. Grace does not give us a free pass to sin as much as we please. As a consequence, we mortify our sin rather than Making our identity to be determined by the sum total of our lusts, of our sins, which is so common today, as we know from those who would say that there are now things such as gay Christians, or some other type of category that we're placing everybody in. That's antithetical, that's completely contrary to what Paul is saying. And I want to make certain that you're grasping the significance of that. Paul makes this point very vividly when he writes to um, his young mentor and student, Titus. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. These are important words. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Starting with verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. He's not a universalist. He's speaking to the idea that all all types of men, all ethnic groups. It's not just restricted to the Jews. It's for everybody. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny what? Ungodliness. Now pay attention to the words. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. I like these words. To live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. How are these verses forgotten by so many people? How is it that we can have people with a straight face put before us the idea that the sum of their lusts identify them as a Christian. It's preposterous. It's ridiculous. We are to live sensibly. We are to live righteously and godly in the present age. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. I like the idea of an ethics driven by our eschatology. That's what, that's what Paul's doing there. That those who are the redeemed of Christ are going to live ethically and morally waiting for the one who's going to come back that saved them and enable them to live that way. That's important. True believers will live in the context of anticipating the Lord's return. Gird up your loins. We laugh when I say that. But there's a, there's a reason for that. Luke uses the imagery of that for those who are waiting for the master to come back at any given moment. At any given time. As we look forward to that. And in looking forward to that, I live in the context of the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. I'm going to live in a way that that honors him and and is pleasing to him. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us. What? What? so we can have our best lives now. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong version. Who gave himself for us to, be, to redeem us from what? Every lawless deed. There's an expectation that your salvation is going to result in a certain pattern and way of life. Christians in the New Testament at the beginning of the church age were, were known and distinguished by the way they lived they were known for that go back to the book of acts we too should be in that context so he gave himself for us to be redeemed to be bought back to be brought back in paul colossians 1:13 he has delivered you from the domain of darkness brought you into the kingdom of light who gave himself for us to be to redeem us from every lawless deed And to what? Look at the word here he uses. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You don't belong to yourself. Don't buy into that nonsense. There's so much of that going on today. Learn to love yourself. Embrace your inner you. Whatever that is. No. No. You don't belong to you anymore. You don't want to belong to you anymore. You belong to Christ. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Isn't that interesting? you, you, You belong to him. You're considered to be a possession. How wonderful is that? As a consequence, what? We are zealous for good works. What's a zealot? Paul was known before god saved him to be a zealot for the jews persecuting the christians which means he did it with great vigor and with great energy and with purpose and with a bent towards accomplishing the goal and the end to which he was sent which was to what get rid of christians and he did it zealously We remember from Isaiah chapter 9 that the zeal of God will see to it that all the things that are promised in Isaiah chapter 9 will come to pass. We too then ought to live in that same manner. Not, please, not to get more saved. Not to even be saved. You're already saved. God saved you. What Paul is now saying to you is that you're going to live out the reality of that regeneration by the things that you both do and do not do. So God's free grace of salvation is for the purpose that we would be purified and be zealous for good works. This gospel gratitude that grows out of that, that, that structure that we see in Scripture of guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, grace, and and gratitude that's what the scripture teaches you about yourself you're guilty and condemned fallen captured in your sin dead in your trespasses and sin something has to happen to get you out of that go back to romans 3 romans chapter 3 look at the person that paul describes there that's you that's you guilty condemned you have got to get out of that context you can't do it yourself God does it, he brings you out of that by his grace. His mercy is everlasting, right? And out of gratitude, you're going to live for him to demonstrate the reality of that. You see, it is because of Christ, it is because of Christ that we do these things. Rather than indulge them, we are to kill them, mortify them, because we can and we want to. So we we don't do the things that are listed in verse 5. We don't do the things that are listed in verse 8. All because of what Jesus Christ has done. We now understand, because our minds have been opened, to what we can do to please the Lord. As Paul so often noted in his epistles, and here in Colossians as well, through the gift of faith alone, God gives us Christ and all that he is for us for all of life. The law says, do this and live. The gospel says, I, Christ, have done this so that you shall live. Now remember this. This law gospel distinction is so important. Let me say it again. Through the gift of faith alone, God gives us Christ and all that He is for us for all of life. The law says, do this and live. The gospel says, Christ has done this so that you shall live. Isn't that wonderful? Those those who seek sanctification by the law say, all this we shall do. While those being sanctified in the promise say, all this Christ has done, let us rest under his yoke. Isn't that beautiful? And again, understanding this is so critically important this is where our joy comes from those who live in the context of being sanctified by the law say all this we shall do the pharisee when he's praying with the tax collector says lord i look what i do look what i have done i'm so good that i even tithe of mint you ever seen a mint seed it's microscopic he, he tithes of the most infinite thing. He was proud of that. He was saying to God, look what I've done. Look what I've done. I, 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 I'm so good that I, even, I don't even skimp on tithing over mint. You've got to recognize that. The, fair, the, the tax collector, head bowed, beating his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. No self-righteousness. All this Christ has done, we rest under his yoke. So the choice is this, and Paul makes it abundantly clear believe and receive or try and die. Believe and receive or try and die. There's no middle way, there's no blending of the law and the gospel, the gospel, as we often say. It's Jesus only or nothing. Understanding that then causes me, out of gratitude, To do the things that please the Lord, as Paul notes here then in Colossians 3. So remember that as we consider these imperatives, the do or the don't do, passages, your goal is to understand what is pleasing to the Lord ethically and morally. To know the boundaries and to delight in it since it is the way of the righteous, not the way to righteousness the way of the righteous, not the way to righteousness. Please, friends, please understand the difference. Again, this is driven by understanding this guilt, grace, gratitude structure that we find in Scripture. And the key is to getting this law gospel distinction correct. So let's look then at verse 8. I wanted to go back and lay that foundation again to to make certain that we don't fall into the trap of being proud of our holiness, of looking to our faithfulness rather than the finished work of Christ. The motivation for doing these things that Paul notes is related to what Christ has done for us, and we do them out of gratitude. So verse 8, but now you also... So he's talking to believers, he's talking to the redeemed of God, he's reminding them. And that word, that phrase, you also, in verse 8, is emphatic in the, in the Greek grammar. There's a, there's a structure to it that Paul is saying, but now you also, you also, you, you the redeemed of God, you believers in Colossae, Put them all aside, and and, and, and the way that that phrase, that put them all aside, is structured, it's reaching back into verse 5 and also incorporating verse 8. Paul is kind of summing up all that has been said from verse 5 to that point in the context of these things that are prohibited, the things that we don't do, the things that we mortify, and incorporating into them as well those that are listed in verse 8. So, verse 5 speaks to sins that are typically more private and individual in nature verse 8 is kind of where the rubber meets the road in a lot of ways there, there are some important points to be made here and i'm going to give you an example that i think is pretty compelling uh, in a moment by using scripture to interpret scripture but look at verse 8 but now you also so that's you guys it's all of us put them all aside what anger wrath malice slander And abusive speech from your mouth. And so Paul here kind of makes this turn from what used to be true of the Colossian believers. They were sons of disobedience, they were lost, separated from God, under his wrath. And so he then moves into the idea of what they ought to be able to do and what they can do with regard to their position in Jesus Christ. So instead of engaging in the, the indulgences they once practiced, now they are to put them aside, which means, as we talked about last Sunday, to put off, like you're taking off your clothes. And we talked about the idea of how impactful that metaphor would be, used, would be on these people because clothing was so expensive and, and difficult to get and didn't, it, it wasn't something that people had. They didn't have closets full of clothes like we do. I don't have very many, but Debbie has, I don't know, I've lost count. (laughs) I'm being, I'm just trying to help. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I may have more clothes than Debbie. I'm a bit of a clothes hound, but hey, nonetheless, I'm working on that. I'm a work in progress, so be patient with me. So Paul uses this picture of clothing Mm -hmm being put off, and that would have really captured people's attention, and, and they would have, oh, okay, so I have something better now. I am in Christ. I have been made new creation. I'm going to live in the context and the reality of that in which I have now been clothed, which is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? So that, that, that position, that posture then leads me and and enables me to do what I'm called to do, and that is to to put these things aside, to not be engaged in them. Don't let them be the pattern of your lives. I'm not saying to you that you're never going to be angry again, that you're never going to be bitter again, that you're never going to not engage in some of these sins, whether they be in verse 5 or verse 8. Christians are sinners, and until we're in glory, we are going to struggle with the flesh in the context of that battle with sin. But we know that we can have victory over sin because of what Jesus Christ has done. That we now are equipped to deal with these things. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are empowered by him. Peter would say in 2nd Peter chapter 1 that we are partakers of the divine nature, meaning that we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the ability now to say no to sin, a desire to say no to sin. And the ability to identify sin, most importantly, knowing that it's not something that is pleasing to the Lord. And so he uses this vivid expression to lay aside. And so the idea is that it's it, it also in the context of the grammar here, is the idea of continuous, continuously doing this. This is not a one time thing. We see that in verse 5, and so this mortification is an ongoing process. We see it again in verse 8, when Paul uses the language here, then put them all aside, it could be read, and keep on keeping on putting them all aside. It's not a one-time deal. You ever experience that? Wake up, you're, you're, str- you're, you're struggling with something. With some sin. You wake up the next day, you're struggling with some sin. You wake up the next day, you're struggling with some sin. You have to be constantly on your guard about these things. So we put them all, all these things that Paul is describing. We put them aside as worn out clothing from a previous life. And so now here Paul strings together another series of five nouns to form a second list of vices that Christians should not be engaged in. Verse 5 dealt with sins that are of more sexual nature. Here, these are focused upon more of a social type of sin, relational type of sin. And the first is anger. Something that you're probably not very familiar with. So this is going to be hard for me, because it's hard to relate, right? Who's ever been angry? First is anger. And this is a powerful word that Paul uses here. It's derived from a word that means to Team, and that's T E E M, not T E A M, but to team, denoting an internal motion, especially that of plants and fruits swelling with juice. So, so this anger is something that is that is like wanting to burst out of you, like juice in a grape, or or juice in an orange. You know, I I uh, I, I bought a, a press this last year for my incredibly unfruitful endeavors in my orchard, thinking that if I crushed what I grew, I would enjoy it more. (laughs) It would help me with my anger. (laughs) So... Debbie and I go out into the driveway and we picked all these grapes and we've got apples too and we're putting stuff in and, and we we crush it and these these grapes and things they explode. You know, the juice comes squirting out the side and it's running down a little shoot and into the bucket and oh we're it's just wonderful for about five minutes and then it's done. I'm like all I spent the entire four months doing this, and I get a half a quart of grape juice. <laughs> <laughs> tough faith cometh by farming so anyway but you understand the picture so there's this idea that this anger it's unresolved conflicts fester that fester and ultimately express themselves in bitterness now i know that no one has ever been bitter here before these are foreign concepts to you i know that i'm preaching to the choir but nonetheless, we have to deal with these things. No, friends, I tell you what, we, these are the things that we truly, I mean, all of these things are important, but it's these types of sin that oftentimes even lead us into the other immoral type of things identified in verse 5. You get angry, you get mad about something someone didn't leave up to your expectations, you get bitter about something, and all of a sudden you think you're entitled to engage in some other behavior that's prohibited. I need to feel better about myself, so I'm going to go do this. I'm going to look at this. I'm going to engage in this conduct. So we need to be careful about these things. And so Paul here is is, is addressing the issue of those unresolved conflicts that fester and ultimately express themselves in bitterness. That churning resentment that eventually erupts upon the surface and destroys those in its path. When I was crushing the grapes and they exploded, the juice got out on my pants and on my shoes and they left a stain. I have tennis shoes that have grape stains on them. That's what it does. That's how this works as well. Now, keeping in mind, too, that what is holy in God, that is, when he expresses his anger or his wrath, it is justified. But ours is almost always unholy and destructive. I understand that we can be angry and sin not, but that is the rare occasion. That is very rare. And the little, the little things that fester, that ultimately grow into this, are those things that we don't deal with as we're instructed to by, in Scripture, to not let the sun set upon your anger. The idea there being that don't let things fester to the point that it explodes and erupts in some expression that is inappropriate. This can be devastating in a church and oftentimes is the very cause of significant problems in the church. Over my course in in ministry and being involved in church, I will tell you that it is these types of things. It is this type of anger. It is is this type of malice that lends itself then to the very slander and abusive speech that is also prohibited in the latter portion of verse 8. Let's go to... um, Let's briefly look over to uh, Philippians chapter 4. This is remarkable to me. The way the Bible is structured is really significant in terms of what we're given as reminders. This is profound. Look at what happens. Paul begins in verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, Philippians 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord my beloved. Look what he does in verse 2. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Why? What's going on? Now, isn't it significant that for all of the church ages you know about these two women? But why? Because they were stellar in the church. They were people to be mimicked and modeled. No, because they were fighting with each other. Their fight had had flowed out and into the congregation, so much so that Paul had to write about it in a letter to the church. Hey, you two, deal with your anger and your bitterness. Live in harmony with each other. Live in the reality of who you are in Jesus Christ. Stop acting this way. So for all of church history you don't want to be these two people you don't want your name in the book for this reason <laughs> that's not it well hey you know mom and mom yudia and aunt Santike are in the in the book you know hey that's pretty good at least they're in no so friends these are the types of things. So it's interesting to me that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Philippians would remind us of two people who were not mortifying the very sins that he's speaking of in Colossians chapter 3 verse 8. The consequences of not mortifying those sins in 3:8 result in you being remembered in Philippians 4:2. That's important. Paul understands that these types of sins destroy churches. Paul understands that because of these types of sins, there are factions created. There are barriers established that prevent you from using your spiritual gifts. You get so angry and so bitter that you won't fellowship with other people. That's wrong. That's sin. This is the very thing that Paul is calling us to stop. Look, again, put aside, take off that old filthy clothing put them aside you are the you are the redeemed of god you belong to jesus christ you have been bought and purchased you were hostile in mind colossians 121 you have now been reconciled presented to the father as a trophy of grace live in the context of the reality of that You live in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You ought to be the happiest people on the face of the planet. Why are you fighting with each other? What on earth is going on? What's wrong with you people? That's what's going on here. So Paul Paul is saying to them, you don't do that. These are the things that you mortify. That's how the world lives. You know, it's shameful, I think, that the church has a reputation for being so divisive for being full of angry people for pe- people will say oh i'm not going to church anymore there was a big fight they had a church split everybody got blew up it got people got angry they got mad blah 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 that's unfortunately kind of what we're known for we got to stop this jerry bridges would characterize some of these things as respectable sins we've become so accustomed to them that we're comfortable with them It's okay. In fact, there might even be people within the church who are known because they're angry all the time. Amongst yourselves in quiet conversation, you may say, I can't communicate with that person because they're so angry. I'm not going to deal with that person because they're so angry, because they're bitter, because they're full of wrath and malice and and they'll speak evil of me. This is what it leads to. Let's keep going through the list. It doesn't get any better. Morale, the beatings will stop when morale improves. But this is important for us to understand the words and their meaning. So second, we have dealt with anger. Think of the grape that's about to burst, wrath. This is a common, this is a common usage of Paul. He often identifies these things in other vice lists. We can find them in Galatians 5.20, Ephesians Ephesians 4.31. This previous word that we looked at, anger, described a settled wrath. Um, but in contrast, this word is, is used of anger that boils up and subsides again. So it's kind of an ebb and flow. It's kind of a bat. Oh, one minute, they're, okay, they're, are they angry or not? I don't know. So it's an active, it's an active anger that's constantly, it, you're, you're on pins and needles with this person. Y- you don't know if they're going to hug you or punch you in the face, You're constantly dancing around. Now, husbands and wives, I want you to think about this for a minute. We're going to get to some passages later on in Colossians 3, but unfortunately, these that that speak to the issue of the relationship between a husband and wife, so let's not disconnect this language from that relationship. There are husbands and wives who live in the context of this. There are husbands who are afraid to speak to their wives. They're not sure what they're going to get. There are wives who are afraid to speak to their emotionally in turmoil husband who's always moody. And you can't talk to him and you can't approach him and you can't say anything to him because you don't know if he's going to blow up or bring you flowers. We got to stop living like that. Now, friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. Christians live in the context of the reality of their union with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that you are sinless. You're never going to be sinless. But you can work on these things and you should not be known by them. There should not be a church where people are known within the church as being the angry people. As being the people who are... Who are you just don't know what you're going to get. That's got to stop. Think about that. Now, Philippians 4.2, you got the two women who refuse to live in harmony with each other. You've got an apostle of Jesus Christ writing to them, saying, behave yourself. Stop it. Live in harmony with each other. What are you doing? Satan loves this kind of stuff. It's the little foxes that destroy the grapes, is what we're told in scripture. And Satan knows his playbook is worn and torn. He knows how to push these buttons. You can live, you can leave church, have heard the greatest message you've ever heard. You get slided in the hallway on the way out, and you're fuming for the rest of the week. That's sin. That's flat out sin. Paul says, put that aside. We don't live that way anymore. This is a person, this idea of wrath is one who has angry tempers, outbursts of anger. The third word is malice. And it speaks of evil. It's, it's, it can also be just called evil. And Paul does use that reference in another passage in Corinthians. But, um, but here, it's, it's, it's a more specialized sense of this idea of malice. It, this, this, I, this idea of malice describes a maliciousness or inward viciousness of disposition. So, you know, in the law, one of the things that we have to deal with is whether or not, you know, there's certain causes of action, one of the elements is malice. Did they they form the requisite mindset, the mens rea it's called, and one of the elements may be malice. That is a maliciousness or inward viciousness of disposition. There was an intent. There was a deliberation. And the law will say that if you can prove that element, you get punitive damages. You get more money. It's amplified. You just don't get to have what you lost, but you get to punish the person for being that way. The reason behind that is because we don't want people to act that way in a civil society. And so juries get to punish people who act in malice. And so Paul here is concerned about the idea of those who would act maliciously, an inward, let's think about this for a minute, it's an inward viciousness of disposition. That means you're, you're that way. Yeah, I don't know how else to put it. And again, let's go back to our relationships with our families and with, our, with our, our spouses and with our children. Fathers, we're going to find later, don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't be that person who is, who is viciously disposed to be that way. Stop acting like that. A maliciousness or inward viciousness of disposition. Dear friends, that is antithetical to being a Christian. And I'm going to say, if that is the marker of your life, if that is how people have known you for most of your life, people have avoided you, family won't get together with you, people in church won't fellowship with you, that's a massive problem. And all, In all likelihood, what I would end up doing with you is talking to you about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. we have to be careful about this. Now watch. So we've got three, we got three words, anger. We have anger and wrath and malice. These things, so you've got that one category, but now you have these two other words. You have, you have slander and abusive speech. It's from this Greek root word that's for slander that we derive our word blasphemy. And it can have that connotation when used of speech directed against God. When directed at persons, however, it can also refer to slander, that is, things that are spoken, or more generally, to abusive language. The adjective um, that, that, that's used here by Paul is to give a sense of the, the, the problem that it poses, the nature of the, the type of speech that's associated with it. It's speech against people. This would dovetail into gossip. Um, and, and engaging in that type of communication about people. I wasn't gossiping. I was just talking about the problem they have. Oh, really? You know, that's a problem too. And so Paul here is saying that this type of, so, is something that is common within the world, but shouldn't be co- common in the church. This idea of abusive speech is problematic, which is what Paul says. Again, it kind of dovetails together, slander, abusive speech. It's evil speaking is the idea. It's evil speech in the sense of obscene speech. These types of words, this type of language is to be kept from our mouths, to be kept out of our communication. And so, these two words, slander and abusive speech, are are synonymous in many ways, very similar. And so, here we see in verse 5, or as in verse 5, Paul, in verse 5, Paul began with the manifestation of the evil and worked backward towards its root motivation. Here, however, he moves in the opposite direction. He begins with the root motivation, anger, and moving outward in ever-decreasing elements. And so the root here is anger. Anger. And That's something that we have to deal with. Paul says to put them all aside. And like with greed, we need to deal with that root sin. So as I used before the example of the dandelions, if I go out in the yard and I pop the top of a dandelion off, get the flower, underneath that flower is probably two to three feet of root. I, if I don't want the dandelion anymore, I've got to kill the root. And so if I'm going to deal with the issues that I have relative to wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from my mouth, I've got to deal with the core problem, and that's anger. Anger. Now, this whole idea of anger, again, is completely antithetical to who we are as the redeemed of God. How can people who have been saved from eternal damnation... And separation from God, only knowing him in the context of his justice, as embodied in his wrath, be involved in this. Why would this become the pattern? Why would this become the way that we're known? Why would churches be known for their anger rather than their joy? I actually once heard someone refer to a church as the angry church. What? Are you serious? The angry church? Come on in. We're all angry. <laughs> you're going to come in happy, but you're going to leave angry. <laughs> Guaranteed. No, friends. So this is, this is, the, real, this is the reality. See, and the, the, the beauty of this is that Paul is saying to them, he's not necessarily beating them up about it. But he's telling telling them, you now have the ability to not do these things. You can put them all aside. He's not giving them an impossible task. He's not giving them something that they can't ever accomplish. He's giving them a list of things that they ought to be killing in their lives on a daily basis. Keep on keeping on killing anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Keep on keeping on. You may find some days it's more difficult than others, but that's okay, but you keep on keeping on. Remembering always this, that Jesus Christ was never angry, he was never wrathful in, an in a biblical, sinful way, he was, never, he was never malicious, he never slandered anybody, and he didn't have any abusive speech in his mouth. And he did that for you because he know that you wouldn't and couldn't. So I stand clothed in His righteousness. God still loves me. God still accepts me. God still sees me as a trophy of grace. We can grieve the Holy Spirit in our lives by the sin that we commit. We can go to Him. He is faithful to forgive us if we confess our sins, First John 1, 9. And He will do that. But we don't live in a licensed way in that context. We don't still go on sin and sin and sin. Oh, I'm just going to ask God to forgive me. That becomes willful, high-handed sin. That's a problem if this is the pattern of your life, if this is how you become known, then you need to deal with it if you're known to be a person of angry tempers. And again, husbands and wives, this is, this is a baseline issue for you guys. You, you should not be treating each other in the context of, of any dynamic that's in verse 8. That's just not going to work. So pay attention for those of you about to get married. This is free marriage counseling. So deal with it. Don't let the sun set on your anger. If you're angry at somebody here at church, go talk to them. Go 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 sit down with them and say, listen, I I I need to talk with you about this. And and just and, and, and deal with it. Don't let those things continue to fester because at some point the grape's gonna explode. So as I'm standing there pressing the grapes, I'm turning the handle. At first, they're not, they're not doing anything. They're just in there, you know, just talking to each other. And I'm turning it, and, then, and a little bit little bit of juice comes out. And I keep turning, and all the man, all of a sudden, it's just it's an explosion of grape juice. Welches. Do you see how it works? So friends. Deal with these issues. You don't want to be the ladies in Philippians 4 2. We don't want to be known as a church that acts like this. We are the redeemed of God. We are in union with Christ. We are rooted in Him. Let the fruit of that root express itself by putting aside these sins. We'll say more about this as we move into the balance of chapter 3, dealing with the family, but. I hope that you'll, you'll grasp this. Knowing that Jesus Christ is there, he, is, he has lived a life of, of perfection for us. We can rest in his finished work. But we still deal with these issues because we want to. We love him so very much. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this reminder that we have from your word about how we ought to live our lives, the things that we need to be aware of, Maybe these are blind spots. These are good reminders to us. We all have areas that we need to work on. Forgive us for allowing these things to fester. Forgive us for allowing our anger to explode and for this anger to turn into slanderous, abusive speech about other people, indeed the redeemed, other believers. Help us to be kind and gentle in the speech that we engage in, edifying words rather than abusive speech. Forgive us, Lord, for not being attentive to these things, allowing these things to become patterns and practices within our lives. Help us to see what the Word of God has for us and understanding how we can live in a way that is pleasing to you within the boundaries that you have set for us, knowing that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is faithful always when we are faithless. He is is strong when we are weak. He is always speaking purely when we do not. We rejoice over that great truth. We rest in his finished work and rejoice that we are known by you through him. And we pray, praise you in his name. Amen. God bless you.